We'll open up, please, to Jonah chapter 3. Not there already, Jonah chapter 3. As we continue making our way through Jonah, we've seen a lot happen in chapter 1, you may remember, and Jonah's disobedience and rejection and running um, from the presence of the Lord, and then again thrown into the water, fish swallowing him up, uh, and then we ended... Last night, in verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now that's where we find uh, ourselves in Jonah here in chapter 3. We read uh, the entire chapter, Jonah 3, as we begin. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let me pray for our time together. Lord God, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy. God, we thank you for your patience towards us. God, we thank you that When we fail and we fail and we fail, you continue to extend your grace and your love and your mercy towards us. Lord, I pray that we would be moved by your grace and moved in such a way to repent and to turn to you and to worship you. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. God, that we would see you and your great mercy. God, that we would worship you and praise you, and glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've shared this story with you before, but I'll share it again. I do think it's a a lovely story. And some of you, I know there's a lot of new people, so maybe you haven't heard this before, but a lot of you veterans, you definitely have. My very first job uh, was at good old Togo's and Baskin Robbins combo store. Uh, It was great. Okay, you remember this. And uh, I was just working there for a few weeks, 
and I'm running the cash register on the Baskin Robbins side. Um, and I, there's probably me and one other person working. The other person was like in the back or so, maybe doing dishes. And um, this lady comes in. She's kind of like has sunglasses on. She had a jacket. I don't know if her hood was on or not. She kind of comes up and she she said, I'll take a kid's scoop of vanilla. And it, like, it was the, the cheapest thing you could order on the menu, a kid's scoop. It was like $1.50 or something. And okay, so I gave it to her and said, I'll be $1.50. And she hands me a $100 bill. And I remember I've seen uh, other people, like I didn't want to ask, like, hey, do we take hundreds? And go back into the back of the, you know, where they were washing dishes. It was just me out there. And I remember seeing $100 bills in the cash register. And so I thought, okay, I know we, we accept hundreds. And so I take it and I give her $98.50, right? $98.50 back uh, to her in cash. And she takes her cash, put her pocket in her scoop of ice cream. And she just walks out the door. Didn't think anything of it. And, you know, we go on through the day. And the next day I go I come back into work and my boss comes up to me and says, I noticed this $100 bill in your cash register from last night. Did, did you accept this? I said, yes. I said, we, we accept hundreds, right? And he's like, yeah, we accept hundreds, only this isn't a $100 bill. I said, yes, it is. And he said, no, this is a counterfeit. And he held it up to the light and he said, see this watermark? That's Abraham Lincoln. This is a $5 bill that someone turned into a $100 bill. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I, 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 I felt disgusted like someone just just robbed me like they did me dirty and i and i was fooled and i thought oh no like this is it like am i going to prison <laughs> uh, like like what's what's gonna happen next and i thought at the very least like I, i'll lose my job i'm gonna have to pay for this uh, like something bad is gonna happen but my boss who was not a christian in fact he, he was in and out of jail many times <laughs> he was. He was. It, it, it was a rough Tokos and Baskin Robbins. It really was. It, it was crazy. It was crazy. In any case, he was kind. He was gracious. He was merciful to me. He could have fired me on the spot. I mean, I was 14 years old. I was only working there for a few weeks. He could have said, look kid like this isn't gonna work out and he, he would have been yeah, like that would have been fine he could have made it come out of my paycheck i thought for sure at the very least that's what he's gonna do which at the time i was getting paid six dollars an hour so that would have taken 16 hours for me to recover that but no instead he ate the cost himself he could have told me look you're no longer able to work the cash register like clearly like you're not responsible enough to do so but he let me to continue to work it. And a few months later, he promoted me. <laughs> he could have done any of that. And he would have been fine doing so. I didn't deserve a second chance. He could have washed his hands clean of me. But instead, he gave me a second chance. And if this unbelieving, God-hating person could show me such grace and mercy... How much more can the perfect, holy God of the universe show us grace and mercy? Here in chapter 3, we see Jonah. He finally makes it to Nineveh. After everything he's gone through, here we are now. He's arrived. And this morning, we're going to look at three main characters here in this chapter. Jonah, the Ninevites, and God. 
And in looking at each of these, I want us to walk away with the understanding that God is the God of second chances. We see that God is the God of second chances through the message of Nineveh. I'm sorry, that the message of Jonah. See that God is the God of second chances through the repentance of Nineveh. And God is the God of second chances through the mercy of God. All right, so first we see the message of Jonah. And look at how chapter 3 starts off. It's very similar to chapter 1, right? It's like, here's a new break point. Let's start over. Chapter 1 starts off by saying, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come upon me. And then look at how chapter 3 starts off. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. See, it's very similar. God spoke to Jonah and said, arise. There is a small difference, though. Did you catch the small difference? The first time God said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The second time God said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. See, the first time a very clear message was given to Jonah to give to Nineveh. The evil is against me. The second time, it's almost like a call to Jonah for total obedience to God. Whatever the message might be, call out against Nineveh. That was disgusting. Call out to Nineveh the message that I tell you. That's what he says. Whatever the message is I tell you, go and proclaim this, Jonah. See, God is not just seeking to work through the hearts and the lives of the Ninevites. He is, but also through the heart and the life of his prophet Jonah. Will Jonah be obedient no matter what? Whatever that message may be, will he proclaim it? And you can bet that God works the same way today. That when you serve others, it's not just for the sake of others. God may certainly use you to minister to others, but in doing so, you ought to be growing in your love and your worship of God as well. As you serve others, as you do the work of the Lord, are you growing as well? Are you learning from God as well? Now look at the difference in Jonah's response. This time, right? Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What does it say here in chapter 2, verse 3? So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So now we see a difference in Jonah's response. Did Jonah learn? I think so. I think he learned and he grew while he was in the belly of the fish for three days. I think God taught him. I think God used that as a means of discipline to grow his prophet. Did Jonah fall the first time? Yes, he did. But God is the God of second chances. And here by God's grace, God gives Jonah a second chance. God didn't have to give Jonah a second chance, but he did. And when we say God is the God of second chances, it doesn't mean that that God owes that to us, that he must always give us a second chance because that's what we deserve and that's what God owes us. No. We may not always have a second chance, but God is a gracious God. 
And God is a patient God. And there are times in which it's best that we don't have a second chance. But there are also many times in which God patiently works through his people and gives us the opportunity to try again and to try again and to try again. And Jonah gets a second chance. And Jonah does as God commands. And he proclaims the mercy of God. Look at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, go on a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now is that all Jonah said? Did he just say that one phrase over and over again? Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Is that all he was saying? It doesn't say. It doesn't say. I mean, that's all it said that's recorded. But I don't think that's all he said. I think maybe it was a summary of all that he said. But we don't know for sure. We have indications based on the king's response, which we're going to see later, that he must have known, the king must have known more details of their own sin, must have known more details of the wrath of God. But regardless of what he said, what Jonah said, we know that Jonah obeyed God's command. And we know that God worked through it and he blessed it i just want you to imagine let's imagine if you will the state and condition that jonah is likely preaching in first off it's already a hostile situation right as mentioned before the ninevites were enemies of god nineveh didn't ask jonah to come and be a guest speaker for them for the weekend jonah an Israelite comes unannounced, preaching that the God that they hate is going to destroy them. So you can already imagine that he would, he would likely not receive a warm welcome from these people, right? Not only that, not only is it a hostile situation, but he likely looked and smelled horrible. <laughs> he literally spent the last three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and he just got vomited out on shore I don't know about you but I don't usually like the fresh vomit smell it's not my go to scent his clothes are probably ragged from the journey he doesn't smell good the shirt doesn't seem like he's putting out his Sunday best or is being a good ambassador of who he represents and where's his boat? I can imagine the people initially looking at him coming into town, clothes torn, smells like vomit. He's an Israelite. And the people say, look, dude, you crazy person. Go back to your boat and go back to where you came from. Oh, uh, wait a second. Well, where is your boat? I, I, don't, I don't see it on the docks. Oh, yeah, um. Yeah, I don't have a boat. You see, a, a fish swallowed me up and, and, and just spat me out. Oh, 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 a fish brought you here. Okay, right. Like, all of those things, all those things considered, right? Like, hostile situation. You smell like vomit. You're telling me a fish brought you here. And now the prophet's supposed to preach God's word to them? Like, doesn't this whole story sound absurd? Like, if I'm Jonah, I'm thinking, oh, God, I can't preach to these people. Like, this sounds ridiculous. Does not the gospel sometimes sound ridiculous to the unbelieving world? 
Oh, you're saying that the solution to our greatest problem is found in some guy from Nazareth 2,000 years ago who died on a cross and shed his blood so that you could have eternal life? Don't be ridiculous. What does Paul say about this in 1 Corinthians 1.18? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christian, do not be surprised if the gospel sounds like folly to the unbelieving world. Do not let that hinder you from preaching the gospel. I think we can too often become consumed by what other people think. And when we have suspicion that this person might think that the gospel or what I believe in about Jesus is ridiculous, then we hide it. And we hide the truth from them. Because we're worried that, that they might think that the gospel or even I might be foolish. Yes, the gospel will sound like folly to the lost until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and gives them understanding. But understand this. The message of the gospel in which we preach, it has no bearing on human efforts. Jonah did not look polished Jonah was not in an ideal situation to preach the gospel, but none of that matters. The gospel is not bound by our presentation. The gospel is not limited based on the eloquence of our efforts. Christian, we have to focus on saying what God has for us to say, the truth of his gospel, and leave the results up to God. Just as God told Jonah, preach the message that I tell you. That's it. Preach the message that I tell you. So we must do the same. Preach the message that he tells us and it's found right here. And let God do the work. The results are not up to us. They are up to him. We are simply responsible to do as we are called to do. Sometimes we become too worried about, well, what are we going to say? Or, or what are we not going to say? Or, or how are we going to say it? Or I don't want to look like I don't have the, like the, the answers. Or I look foolish. Or just preach it. Just proclaim it. One would think that after all Jonah went through, I mean, everything at this point, that he would be totally disqualified to preach to Nineveh and God should just use someone else. Like, okay, Jonah, you had your chance. Time's up. Bye-bye. Let me get a different prophet in here. But even God can redeem the worst of situations. In fact, in my opinion, Jonah's testimony is even stronger now. He's a living testimony that God is the God of the first chance and of the second chance and third chance and all the chances. God is the God of forgiveness. And I think based on what we examined in chapter 2, Jonah was in right position to share a personal testimony to these people, telling them in the way in which he ran from God, the way in which he disobeyed God, but also an example of God's great grace and mercy. He's saying, look, I ran and I was stubborn and I disobeyed. And I'm sinking to the bottom of the sea. No chance. And God saved me. Yeah, there is no boat here. A fish did swallow me up. <laughs> our sins, our failures, they must not be hidden in our testimony. But they must be at the forefront of our testimony so that we may show the great mercy of God. Christians are too often scared to admit their own sin. And in doing so, they hide the great mercy of God. 
And maybe we're okay with saying, yeah, before I was a Christian, I sinned a lot. But now I'm pretty good. And it's good to show, yes, God has made a difference. But also God still forgives us every day. And we struggle, but God's grace is sufficient. We need to be open about our sins, both to believers and to unbelievers. Let us not hide our sin as if people can't see through that anyways. Instead, let us show the great mercy of God by showing we still sin and God is still merciful. Jonah, despite his physical condition, despite the likely rejection and possible persecution he could receive, despite the sin and the rejection he had so recently lived against God, he still proclaims the message that God gave him. What is your excuse? What is your excuse? Will you proclaim the message that God has given you? Are you proclaiming the message of salvation? Are you proclaiming to all men their need for Christ? Despite your circumstances, despite your physical condition, despite the likely rejection you will receive, despite the sin that you've been living in, Will you be faithful to God's command for your life? Will you be faithful to proclaim his word? Secondly, we see the repentance of Nineveh. We see the repentance of Nineveh. Jonah preaches and the people believe. I mean, what an incredible revival. Look at verses 4 and 5. Right? Jonah began to go into the city, and he called out, Yet yeah, 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What happens in verse 5? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. How did Jonah come to, I'm sorry, how did Nineveh come to this point of repentance? Was it because Jonah was so great? Because he did such a good job with his preaching? I don't think so. In fact, I think that might be some of the reason why we only have one sentence of what Jonah said. Whether that be a summary of what he said or whether that's the only thing he said, I think the point is clear. God is the one whom they believed. God is the one who did the saving. Pay attention to it in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed who? What does it say? God. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Not Jonah. Didn't say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. God. And so it is true. With any evangelism we do, it's not our words that pierces through the soul. It's not. It's God's. It is also true in what you must believe. You must not believe man's words. Believe God's words. Too often at, at, at camps like this or churches or wherever you might be, people believe man's words rather than God's. And the result is a temporary enthusiasm that eventually withers away and a return to ungodliness and rebellion towards God. Now, can man's words be in line with God's words? Yes, they ought to be. But our hope must never lie in man or what he says. Our hope must lie in God and what he says. And so Nineveh believed God. These were wicked people. 
These were God-hating people. Their response should have been, get out of here, you smelly Israelite. Go back to your fish, see if we'll swallow you back up. We don't want to hear anything you're saying. In fact, you stay any longer and we're going to kill you. That's what the response should have been. But instead, a city-wide revival and genuine repentance? They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Does this not show you the incredible work of salvation, or the incredible work of God in salvation? That it is not in our power at all. It is God's grace and his glory in salvation. Always, all the time. I hope this encourages you in evangelism. If you are waiting for the perfect time or the perfect place or the perfect circumstance, then you are never going to say anything because there will never be a perfect moment. The perfect moment is when you have a chance to speak. That's it. When you have the moment to tell someone you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Don Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, he talks about being disciplined in sharing the gospel. And not just waiting for the opportunity to arise, but to actually pursue and initiate he says of the opportunities, he says, quote, they won't just happen. Many such opportunities for evangelism will never take place if you wait for them to occur spontaneously. The world, the flesh, the devil will do their best to see to that. You, however, backed by the invincible power of the Holy Spirit, can make sure that these enemies of the gospel do not win. End quote. Stop waiting. And start pursuing. If you are a Christian, you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. You have the word of God on your heart. You have a clear command from God. And you have an unbelieving world in front of you. It sounds like the opportunity is there waiting for you. Now, word gets to the king. And we see an incredible act of repentance. Look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Look at all of that symbolism. Oh, my goodness. The word reached the king, and he arose. Jonah, a follower of God, was called to arise and preach the word of God. And at first he did not do this. He arose, and he went the other way. The second time he did arise and he proclaimed the word of God. Now we see the king who is not a follower of God. He heard the word of God and he arose. He did not arise to proclaim the word, but he arose to receive the word. Maybe you are here. Maybe you're here and you're not like Jonah. You're not a follower of God who needs to arise and preach his word. Maybe you are here and you are like the king who has the word of God and you need to arise and receive it. That you've heard the gospel, that you know the word of God. Will you continue to reject it? 
Will you continue to ignore it? Or will you arise and receive God's word and accept his gospel? Now what else do we see from the king? That he removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth. And he doesn't go back to sit on his throne. What does he do? He sits in ashes. I mean, do you see the impact of God's word that has instantly had on the king? One moment he is wearing his kingly robe, sitting on his throne, and the next moment he looks like an insignificant peasant, mourning in sackcloth, sitting in ashes. He sure doesn't look like a king of a great city. But God's message tumbled him before God. Does God's word humble you before him? Does God's word humble you before him? When you approach God's word, when you read it, when you hear it preached, does it humble you? Do you sit under his word knowing that you are not worthy to receive it and knowing that it is the very word of the almighty, holy, living, and true God? Or do you read the word of God mindlessly to get through your daily duties? Do you listen to the word of God being preached while playing on your phone, while being distracted by others, while being a a distraction to others, just waiting for the sermon to be done. Do you have reverence for the word of God? Do you come hungry to the word of God? Be humbled by his word. Now the king doesn't just stop there. Look at what he does in verse 7 and 8. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from their violence that is in his hands. He's saying, look, nobody is eating. Nobody's drinking, not even the animals. We need to call upon God and turn from our evil ways. And we might think, well, hold on, wait a second. Did the animals repent and receive salvation? Does this mean my dog's going to heaven? No, the animals did not receive salvation. But oftentimes in the ancient world, people would include their animals in their fasting. And when the animals would die off, From a lack of food and water, they would sacrifice them. Really what the king is saying is this. Look, we might lose all of our business. We might lose all of our food. But it doesn't matter because we're not right with God and we're in danger. What good is food and business if we're at enmity with God? Put all that away. Cry out to God and turn from your evil ways. Wow. Might we need to listen to the decree issued by the king? If you are not a Christian, whatever it is you are building for yourself in this life, if you are at enmity with God, it's all for nothing. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Are you seeking to gain the whole world at the expense of losing your soul? I mean, you could have all the, quote, success in this life. 
You can have all the fun. You can have all the money. You can have the, the American dream. You can do the relationships that you want, the popularity, whatever it is. But what does it matter if you are still in danger, if you are still enemies with God? There's not a thing on this earth that comes close to the value and the worth and the joy of having a relationship with God. There's nothing even remotely close to being in the same league. Listen to the decree of the repentant king and put everything else away. There's nothing more urgent than being right with God. And if you are not in Christ, you are not right with God. And if you are not right with God, then there's nothing more important or urgent than for you to put everything else away and to cry out to God and faith and repentance and turn from your evil ways. Do you see the change in the king? Do you see the change in Nineveh? Do you see the repentance? The king who hated God, he arose and received the word of God. Then he arose and proclaimed the word of God. And then he and the people of Nineveh not only regretted their sin, but abandoned it, said verse 10. Do you have the same repentance? Have you received the word of God? Is your life different now that you've received it? Lastly, what we see is the mercy of God. We see the mercy of God. But before we even look at God acting in mercy, I want us to look at the faith of the Ninevites. We've already seen the repentance, but it's also coupled with faith, right? Repentance is coupled with faith. Look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You're like, is that faith? It doesn't really sound like faith. It's not a strong faith. It's not a mature faith, but I believe it is faith. It is faith as the size of a mustard seed. They don't know much about God, but they know enough to repent and to believe that he is a wrathful God, but he's also gracious and a forgiving God. And in their small-sized faith, they believe that God could relent from his anger and that they would not perish. And indeed, that is exactly what God did. Their plea was for the mercy of God. And God was merciful to them. Now some people have an issue with this. They ask, did God change his mind? Right? It says, who knows? God may turn and relent. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do to them. And so he did not do it. And so did God change his mind? The answer is no. God can't change his mind. Because God can't change. He's immutable. That means he's unchangeable. He does not change. There are many evidences of this in the Bible. One of which is Numbers 23, 19. It said, God is no man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not fulfill it? God is not a God... Who changes his mind? But doesn't it seem as if God changed his mind? Like does, does God's word contradict itself? 
Certainly not. So what's going on here? When discussing God's judgment, we must understand it in its full picture. The other side of the coin of God's judgment is God's mercy. Inherent with the message of judgment is also the message of mercy. The message of judgment is this. You have sinned against a holy and just God, and in your sin, you are deserving of God's eternal wrath. But because of the finished work of Christ, if by the grace of God you place your faith in him and repent of your sins, you will be saved and you will receive the mercy of God. You see, God did not change his mind. God doesn't change. But with the message of judgment always comes the message of mercy. In fact, that's the whole reason why Jonah didn't want to proclaim God's judgment on Nineveh. Because he knew that paired with the message of judgment also comes God's mercy. And we're going to look at that more tonight. So if God didn't change his mind, then what happened? God showed mercy. See, that's what mercy is. The default is that they deserved and would receive the wrath of God. They responded in faith and repentance. And God in his mercy has now chosen to withhold his judgment and wrath upon them. And the same has happened to every single believer in this room. And every single believer anyway. That we all had the wrath of God hanging over our heads. That we all, by our default, in our human nature, we're children of wrath. But God in his great mercy took that wrath away from us. And he placed it on his son on the cross. And Christ bore that wrath on our behalf. You see, it's the same thing. We had the wrath of God as our verdict too. When by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit breathed new life into us, we believed and we repented and God removed the wrath from our eternal sentence. Did God change his mind? No. He acted in mercy. That is the point. God is a merciful God. Maybe you are someone... Maybe you're someone or maybe you know someone who is in sin, maybe in deep sin, maybe wants nothing to do with God, maybe hates God. Know that God is a merciful God and he can save. If you are not in Christ, there is judgment upon you. The wrath of God is upon you. But on the other side of that coin is his mercy. And his mercy is available to you. Will you be like Nineveh? Repent and believe and receive the mercy of God. We focused on three main characters this morning. Jonah, the Ninevites, and God. And through looking at them all, we see that God is the God of second chances. He's not just the God of second chances or third chances or fourth chances or hundred chances. He's the God of all the chances. Both the Christian and the non-Christian need to understand that. If you are not a Christian, you need to understand that you have sinned greatly against God. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you think you're good or not, it doesn't matter. The truth is God is real. The truth is you are not good. The truth is you are guilty before God and his wrath and judgment is upon you. But the other truth is this. That God is a merciful God. And while you've sinned once 
And while you've sinned twice, and while you've sinned countless times, God is the God of second chances. And let me be clear, the, the, the second chance is not for you to try harder and be a better person. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, he's got a second chances. Good, let me try again to be better. Let me try again to be better. And, and you, no, that's not what I'm saying. The second chance for you to realize that you, you need God and you need to cry out to him to save you. The second chance, what I'm saying, is his patience. His patience that ought to lead you to repentance. And Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died in our place and he rose from the dead so that we would be reconciled to the Father. So will you recognize your hopelessness apart from God? Will you recognize your sin against him? And will you turn to him in faith in Jesus Christ? And repentance of your sin. Now if you are a Christian, I want to leave you with two challenges. Two challenges to the Christian. First, maybe you are like Jonah. And you are a follower of God. But maybe you've run from God. Maybe you can identify pretty clearly in your life an area. Or maybe areas in which God has a clear command. But you run the opposite way. Know that God is a merciful God. And he's the God of second chances. What I mean by that is this, that God has forgiven you of your sin and God loves you the same, even in your sin. Do not let that be motivation to continue in your sin, but let the mercy of God lead you to repentance and know he knows the depths of my heart. He knows how wicked I am that I continue to sin against him even though he has saved me. And he still loves me. God called Jonah to arise. And he went the opposite direction. And God disciplined him. And he meditated on the mercy of God. And when God called him again, he arose and he went forth. What is God calling you to today? Christian, what is God calling you to today? Is he calling you to put to death a certain sin? Is he calling you to to get off your butt and to step outside your comfort zone and to serve him in a specific way? Maybe to to, to go into a hostile situation in which you don't look presentable, in which like it has no chance of anything happening. But God is calling you anyways. What is he calling you to? Will you arise? Will you arise this time? Second, Christian, maybe you know people like the Ninevites. Maybe there are people in your life who reject God, who want nothing to do with Him, who it seems like like, like they, they will never believe. I challenge you, arise and proclaim the word of God to them. Look, on, on paper, Jonah had no chance of having a single convert when he preached to Nineveh. I mean, they hated God. They hated him. He likely looked bad. He smelled bad. There was no indication that they would warmly receive his message. And if salvation had anything to do with human effort, Jonah stood no chance. But it has nothing to do with human effort. And it has everything to do with the sovereignty of God. And Jonah doesn't have converts. That's not what it's about. God does. So what seemed like an impossible task turned into a great 
city-wide revival in an instant. Why? How? Because God willed it. And he used his stinky, complaining servants to do it. That means God can use you too. If it is his will. And I don't know if it's his will to save those in your life. I don't know. But it is his will for you to proclaim his word. Will you arise and proclaim the good news of Jesus to others? Even those who seem least likely to ever accept him. Praise God. He's the God of second chances. Because we've all failed the first chance. And we've all failed the second chance. And so on and so forth. But praise be to God that Christ came and never failed. And it's because of Christ's finished work and his perfect life that is imputed onto Christians that we can receive the mercy of God. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the God of all chances. God, that your patience is strong and continual. That your grace is infinite and your mercy is infinite. God, we thank you that you love us even in the depths of our sins. Lord, I pray that we would arise and respond to your call in our life, whatever it may be. God, for those in here who do not know you, who are not in Christ, God, I pray that they would arise and receive your word, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they would be like the king, that they would be like Nineveh, and that they would turn from their evil ways and they would turn to you. God, for those in here who do know you, who are in Christ, I pray, Lord, that we would see the ways in which we have turned our backs towards you, in which we run the other way, and God, that we too would repent. Receive your mercy, that we would arise and proclaim your word, that we would arise and worship you in all things. God, convict our hearts. Let us not look to others in the ways in which they fall short, but let us see the ways in which we fall short and the ways in which Christ has overcome our sin. Let it lead to our worship and our praise of you. God, bless this time that we have as we discuss these things. May it be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.